there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Are Premier League fans spoilt? Do you not think David Moyes' contract ends the end of this season? But they are getting what they kind of want, which is a three European campaigns. A lot of our core support are actually worried about the commercialisation of the club. Can Palace or Fulham break into the top six? No. And if not, so, not consistently. No. It's no. impossible. Impossible. Oh, unless the ownership got a huge injection of cash. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Ripple Effect. Uh, very excited about this podcast. Bit nervous as well actually, just because I think we might, I think I might be winding some people up as we get into the idea of Premier League fans possibly being spoilt. Yes, we will get into the nuance of that, don't worry. I know it sounds hyperbolic, but it's not going to be. Um, before we start off the podcast, I do want to do uh, apologise for two things. I did two unforgivable things uh, last week on the podcast. And last week on the podcast, it was, a bit, it was all a bit hectic because we had um, the Irish guy coming down from Newcastle and then Michael's, yeah, he was a touch late and then we were trying to get everything sorted out. And whilst I was waiting for him at the station, the first thing I did, which was unforgivable, was I bought a bubble tea. <laughs> and um, the bubble tea that I bought, uh, I then had in front of me during the podcast and I drank from that and that really wound people up, which is a, just a no-go in a podcast. And I realised as I was drinking it, I was like, this is the worst thing I could ever drink because not only is it, am I slurping, there's also ice in the cup and also there's like tapioca things. So I then got to chew the tapioca things in an audio format, which is an utter disgrace. So I'd like to apologise for that. The second thing I want to apologise for is we uh, looked at some of the worst predictions ever and we've done someone dirty. Okay, so Dave, Statman Dave, we did you a little bit dirty, mate, because uh, we'd seen on uh, the Peter Cratch podcast, there'd been a bit of gentle ribbing about you saying Serbia might win the the World Cup, which they didn't. And we put that into our tier list, which was obviously just a bit of fun. Um, But when I've reviewed the tapes and you only say Dark Horse, uh, which obviously is not saying exactly that they're going to win it. And so I've now learned from this mistake because I think back in the day I would have done things like this and... No one watches it, whereas fortunately people watch the content these days. So Statman Dave knows football, is football. And Dave, if you're listening or watching exclusively on Spotify, I massively, massively apologise for doing you dirty. OK, let's introduce our guests. <laughs> Henry. Hello. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. So how are we... Go on, let's, let's, let's do a, sort of a reintroduction to the man that is Henry Hill. Now, you will have seen Henry's face everywhere. Okay, but it's one of those ones where like, oh, he was in this really great boy band and now he's doing his solo stuff. And I don't know, there's something about this guy. I don't know if it's the jumper, I don't know if it's the voice, but it's exciting. So who are you, Henry Hill? And why should we be excited about you? (laughs) That's a harsh first question. In a boy band, Football Daily boy band, that would not be going very far. That's quite early noughties boy bands. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, I'm Henry. Uh, I featured heavily on Football Daily for the last four years and on Sky Sports uh, on the football show. In the last year, if you've if you've been watching, um, yeah, I'd probably say Continental Club is where so, most people know me from. Uh, that's with Doogie Critchley and Mikey McCubbin, and yeah, I think that's been one of the real great joys of the last um, four years of my career is just making that okay. European content with those guys. But I mean, yeah, it's it's a weird one stepping away from that and not having to think about football every single day, like every yes. minute and every day, and then suddenly like coming back in as a freelance and is there a is there a ripple effect of like a newfound enjoyment with that little bit of space yeah i think absolutely i think just not having uh seeing twitter posts every single day (laughs) (laughs) i think that's definitely a bonus um not being called a variety of ways of posh um (laughs) that's that's that's, no everyone's very nice at the end a cult following some would say i agree Um, but anyway you are your own man Yes, and that absolutely. is why you are here. I wanted to get you on the pod uh, because um, I love the knowledge that you have, especially on European football. And importantly, for this podcast, uh, being a Fulham fan as well. Um, so we're going to do two podcasts this week. Um, so if you're not following the podcast, please do me a favour. Hit, uh, hit the follow button wherever you listen to your podcast. And uh, you'll be able to enjoy both this one 
And also uh, the second one, which will be out later this week, where we're talking about Real Madrid and Barcelona and how the next six months are pretty huge uh, for the next 10 years, probably, for both those clubs. Um, Speaking of having to be on Twitter, Daniel, uh, HLTCO, otherwise known on Twitter, uh, also has a YouTube channel, which is fantastic as well. And of course, a podcast as well. Um, how are you, mate? It's been a busy week for you as well, right? Without a doubt, yeah. My head feels like it's been in a blender, to be honest. <laughs> um, you know, with with everything that has gone on, the managerial situation, Roy collapsing at the training ground, being admitted to hospital, the managerial situation then being delayed, then having a Monday night game, seeing the announcement being made at about four or five o'clock that Roy was stepping down Oliver Glasner comes in we have a six pointer away at Goodison Park it all just it's a lot you know it's, and with the normal chaos of, of Twitter as well it, it certainly wasn't a particularly pleasant week but you know we've got through it and we're here so right let's get into this let's, uh, let's wind some people up uh, word of the week <laughs> expectation a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future now expectation is something I bring up a lot a lot. Two two words starting with E actually. Expectation and entitlement. Mm-hmm. And I actually when I was reading expectation, I was they're very close to each other. And so that might be one for a, a future podcast where we kind of look at entitlement, which again I think are both very entitlement certainly much more so, very charged words. Um and it is a sort of charged question, this idea that Premier League fans may possibly be spoiled. So let's get into this. So are football fans entitled to anything? Many supporters are often often use the word expectation when things aren't going right for their club. And this word is often followed by the phrase, where's the ambition in most cases? Cough, cough, Everton. Kai's written here. Kai's an Everton fan. This often happens amongst the teams that have a strong level of identity, but also a good level of support. The level of support often dictates the expectations placed on the club. Look at Wrexham in the National League, for example. The expectation for years was to get promoted purely on size alone. But is that always enough? And has the word been a good or a bad thing for clubs outside the top six? Let's start off with Crystal Palace. Because what what I think is really interesting is the, the, sort of the, the way that Palace fans have gone about the situation... Uh, in in recent months, I guess. Obviously, Roy Hodgson, very poor run from October um, onwards. I think something like three wins, and those three wins were against pretty poor sides uh, as well. But I think, I don't know if you noticed it or, or if you felt it, Henry, but it felt a little bit different, the the style of sort of, of um, angst from Palace fans. And it was a bit more, it felt a bit more European than, yes. than uh, you would normally see in England. And I think that's something that's kind of been a very sort of palace thing within the the Premier League. Um, did you notice that? Did you feel that? I think so. I think with Palace, um, they almost turned a corner of some of the creative signings that they were bringing in, Elise, Eze, and suddenly we're looking at this thinking that, that's a reborn as a, a exciting forward thinking outfit. And I think then to suddenly see the struggles of this season, I mean, I know there's so much turmoil about even offering Roy Hodgson another year's deal in the summer, that seemed like a real big decision for the club to make. And who are we going to be going forward? And when that began to backfire this season, and it's interesting what you say about expectations. I don't know what people expect when you lose a lot of your best players to injuries over the course of the campaign. I mean, no disrespect to Palace, the depth, the the, the drop off is huge, and you can't just keep doing the same kind of football with the old boys that they had, just relying on Jordan Ayew to score screamers every now and then. So I'm not sure what they were quite expecting, but I just think. The optimism at the start of the campaign was so high and with this young squad coming through, a great centre-back pairing and whatnot, I think to suddenly see the decline really sent a shockwave that, yes, I agree with you, I've not witnessed before. So, let me come to you on this one because the thing is, Daniel, now I asked my best mate who's a Stoke fan, right, and he said, he said this, right, he said, for Palace fans, for Palace fans and clubs of that size, you have to accept that 60% of the time you're going to struggle in the Premier League. He actually said premiership, which I didn't think people use that word anymore. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Clubs often blame the style of football as opposed to the results, but I think that's bollocks. This isn't at you, Daniel, by the way. This is just that he's directly at me. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's bollocks. Ultimately, they want to see their team win consistently, but quite simply, that's not going to happen. Brighton, this is a a bar. Brighton are the anomaly, not the rule. Mm. You can dream big, but be prepared for it not to work out. (laughs) He's then written philosophy. (laughs) <laughs> thank you Craig thank you um, so with that in mind right so 
I, I messaged you this morning saying, oh, there might be some kind of prickly questions that I want to put towards to, to you. One, I think, feels fair to me, but when I hear from Palace fans, they feel differently to this. And what I didn't do with the desire not to do you dirty was go back to some of the podcasts we've done before, maybe in the summer, because I was like, because obviously you have to comment about Palace a lot, or you want to comment about Palace a lot, obviously. And it felt like for me, and I was like, oh, wow, you've turned on Roy pretty quickly there. Um, do you think it's a fair comment for someone to suggest that Roy Hodgson has been disrespected in any way over the last few months and obviously to the end of his tenure here with quite severe protests here? It's a... Uh... Unfortunately for social media and the way things tend to be, it is a nuanced discussion rather than just a shouty Let's one. Do it, man. I you have to go back to the very beginning of his first spell with us. In terms of Frank De Boer, we'd lost five on a spin. He came in, boyhood Crystal Palace fan, never managed the club before, but getting on in years already, stabilised the club, had a team at that point with the likes of Ruben Loftus Cheek, Yayan Kabay. Andros Townsend before Andros Townsend turned into the current version of Andros Townsend Wilfred Zaha he had a very fluid team and he quickly got us away from relegation danger he established a style of play that was attractive on the iron not that that is the be all and end all for Palace fans but it was a good time the, the end of his first spell with us saw the team ageing saw him rely on the same faces week after week regardless of any potential for there to be a change in things it was the right time for him to move on when he did. I honestly don't believe, had he stayed, that players like Abire Eze, not well, Abire Eze was there already, mm. Michael Elise, Mark Gay, Chet Decore, Joachim Anderson, I don't think they would have come in to play under him because of the perception of Crystal Palace in the wider footballing sphere at that time. Yeah. Patrick Vieira arrived. He has a huge reputation in this country because of the invincible season being captain. And even though he didn't have managerial numbers to back it up on... Premier League levels, you know, he had He'd done okay, hadn't he? And he was, he was far okay. sexier choice. Yeah, mm. of course, he's a big name, and yeah. I think players immediately saw Patrick Vieira and thought Palace in the Premier League in London, Patrick Vieira signed me up, mm. and it worked very well for the first year when Conor Gallagher was there. As soon as Conor Gallagher went back to Chelsea, I think Patrick Vieira fell foul of trying to do the same thing without that dynamism in the middle of the park. There were plenty of people outside Palace that felt it was the wrong time to sack Patrick Vieira. But if you look at the underlying numbers, it was absolutely the correct call to do. I think we hadn't had a shot for three or four games on target under him. It was horrendous. Roy Hodgson came back in. I'm reliably informed because the players who had been there previously asked for him to come back in. There was this immediate jolt of positivity because we knew that we would be organised again. We got a pivotal win at home to Leicester in the last minute. And then we went and beat Leeds, scored five away. Went to Southampton, scored three, I think it was. And everything was rosy in the Palace Garden. And even though I understand why the club did bring him back for another season, I fully also understand that the club and the fan base, we don't expect success. We just want to see a long-term thought process. And having already parted ways amicably with a man who is, with all due respect, getting on in years, yeah, once before, and knowing the pitfalls of that at that particular point it doesn't send the best message that you are trying to not necessarily kick on, but have a process in place that is going to work for the next two or three years. And the protests themselves, I don't think they were necessarily directed at Roy Hodgson specifically. You know, the banners in the away end at Arsenal, there's a lot of fractured thinking at the moment amongst the fan base because you've got different owners. You've got two Americans in, in Josh Harris and David Blitzer who have previously been linked with a move to buy Chelsea. You've got John Texter, who's got a multi-club model. He wants to make a splash in the Premier League and spend a lot of money, but there's a little bit of doubt over whether or not he has the finances to back that up long term. And you've got Steve Parrish as a shareholder, but someone that is coming in for a significant amount of stick now because Palace fans, whether or not they're right to think it, they feel as though the ownership structure is, is fractured and they are butting heads. So you've got a whole different mesh of, of things going on. Mm. And unfortunately, I think the media as a collective have taken our form seen Roy Hodgson as an old man is well respected in the game and assumed that it's purely at Roy's feet. That's interesting. So mm. so again, to provide the extra bit of context, Chris Palace, there's this, the four guys and then when they can't seem to decide from what I've read, it gets put on Steve Parrish to just sort of make the the final decision. And so like you say, the sort of learns and, and when it comes to Parrish, there's a feeling that he's, um, he's quite cautious, mm. which is coming back to my mate's uh, messages 
I wanted to hear it from him because he's the sort of side of a Stoke City fan that is struggling mm. in the championship now and were ninth, ninth, ninth. Then we're like, well, no, this is boring with Tony Pulis. Let's get Mark Hughes in, who did well for a year, a bit like Patrick Vieira, and then it went wrong mm. and it was too late and, and down they go and they, they've never sort of been able to, you know, it's it's very, very dangerous. Like numbers came out uh, today that, um, you know, QPR are, are losing 400k a week, right? Oh, I mean. And we are, but in terms of debt within the championship teams, we're still in the bottom half of that. So the money that's being lost, it is a wildly precarious position. So survival and safety is a, a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think what's interesting with your point here is that when people don't know these names and they're a lot of these owners, a lot of the time that it can go both ways. You either go at the ownership and go get them out because you don't really know the faces. They're just sort of like rich people up in the sky. Mm-hmm. And, but also I think with, from the Hodgson's point of view, that's a great p- point is that he's sort of been, he's kind of done nothing wrong, but he is not the future. And I think that's a big problem. And he, as a manager, you are the face of the club a lot of the time. And so when it's sort of a bit boring and it feels stale, then then he then people are going to go for him, aren't they? A little bit. But I will say as well, the form has been horrendous, Jim. Like it, we've won three games in eighteen. We haven't scored from a corner all season. We concede from set pieces all the time. We set up defensively against Arsenal to try and nullify any attack they've got. You don't have the freedom to attack. You concede after two minutes. The game's gone. We went to Brighton, our main rivals. We conceded from a set piece, having set up defensively after two minutes. And at half-time in that particular game, we talk about necessary criticism of Roy Hodgson. I will use this completely. We were 3-0 down in that game at half-time. It's gone. We all know it's gone because in terms of gears, Brighton didn't even have to get out first and they were battering us. Mm-hmm. He put Michael Elise on for 45 minutes when he had taken himself off with a hamstring issue. He sat down on the turf at Selhurst Park four days previously. He was passed fit to play a part. But for Not me... Not like Roy Hodgson. But for though. me, if you are... <laughs> yeah, but no, here's the thing, right? If you are fit to be on the bench, then quite clearly, if you're fit enough to start, Roy Hodgson starts you at Brighton. Right, that is a fact. He's our best player. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's our most vibrant attacking threat. If you have the freedom to start Michael Elise in a game against Brighton away from home, you do it. So the fact that he's on the bench means that he's not fully fit. Putting him on at half time when you're three 0 down and the game is as good as gone. There have been so many people that have said Palace fans would have slated Roy Hodgson if he hadn't done that. It's just categorically not true. If you looked at social media at half time. Everybody, as soon as that sub was made, and I'm talking 99.9% of Palace fans, said, what are you doing? But, mate, when it comes to... Sorry, Henry. I bring no, no, in the, so Just with that, I mean, you're going to get... If you want uh, both sides of any argument in a heated moment, you'll find it on Twitter. No, I'm talking, think, I'm talking 99.9%, Jim. Yeah, I, I swear, but I think, I swear but, to you. But, of course, it went utterly wrong. So, in hindsight, if say, say you don't put him on... And, again, I'm, I don't... I don't think that's the sort of thing to die on. Mm-hmm. Like it's like he's there, he's available. We're trying to change the game here a little bit. You put your best you put your best player on. You go to the medical team, go, is he okay to be, be put on? Then you can do it. Obviously it looks bad in hindsight, but I think that's an easy yeah, thing. I agree. Like if 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 you just capitulated second half and got smashed again, then he'd come in for even more stick. If it had shown at half time that he was trying to show some endeavour. That would be a lack of ambition, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Can I just caveat that? There are players who were on the bench that he could have given minutes to that are dying to prove themselves, that aren't established. Players like Matthias Franzer. Yeah. If if you get back mm-hmm. in the game and you've got 15 minutes to go and you're 3-2 down, throw him on. Right. Not for 45 minutes at 3-0 down. He's I, our best player yeah, okay. and he's I, gone for 3 I don't want to get caught up in, in that one no. element too much because I don't think that that's not why he's got the, the no, sack. I think, look, the Brighton element of it is, is interesting. I just think as mid-table Premier League fans, which I'm not, but like generally the idea of mid-table, I wish, right? Yeah. Which is kind of my point, is it's a very weird place to be mm-hmm. like in terms of what are you supposed to dream of what are you supposed to hope for like as a Fulham fan how do you f- how do you feel about because with Fulham Fulham are in like a nice little tidy place yes but they've had they've had the sort of critique of um, you spend 100 million and like, <laughs> how could you spend 100 million and then Norwich then go up with you and go why haven't they spent 100 million like it's it's a very weird place to sort of get it right and it does feel like to me that 
And I get it because it's that that's the game, but it, it comes down to winning and losing. It does. I think we have to remember that. And expectation. Going to a football game means different things to different people. For some people, it's about escapism. For others, it's being part of the community. For some, it's just all about the football. It's You've got to sort of weigh these things up when deciding if uh, fans are um, entitled or whatnot. Like, the interesting thing about Fulham at the moment is they're furious about the ticket price. That's the big, that's the big kind of uh, complaint at the moment, is we have one of the most expensive ticket prices in the UK. They're charging sort of seniors £60 of certain matches. It's a bit of a disgrace. But the caveat is, we play nice football. Mm. And it is something aesthetically to enjoy. And it is interesting being a Fulham fan at the moment because we've had the really kind of tricky yo-yo years, as it were, where we had a big turnover of managers. We tried tried different things with different managers and it didn't work out. But it's got to a point now, Fulham, where it's quite like an honest team. We've got a few stars in the side. Uh, Robinson at left-back, Polinia, obviously, in central midfield. How long he stays, we don't know. Even Willian really turned up, playing great football. Leno being sort of a standout keeper in the Premier League. We're, we're playing attractive football. We're not winning all the time. But every now and then, we have a nice little cup run. We got to the semi-final of the Carabao Cup this year. Last year, we got to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup and then capitulated in pretty dramatic fashion against Manchester United. It's these little like nuggets of hope that we could get back to that Europa League time. We could get back to that European football that keep a team like Fulham maybe being accepting of the, the fact that we are, what, 13th at the moment, 12th at the moment. I do think that fans, being in the Premier League is a privilege in that you would rather see your team play every other week against the very top clubs. You'd rather have the best players in the world coming to your ground than being stuck necessarily in a lower division. And it's interesting, I have a friend who supports Stoke City and year after year, sort of the shine of what was a Premier League side going and going and going and then he sees like the signings coming in now and... I mean, he, he will love the club, whatever, but he does joke about the fact that, yeah, they've now fully regressed into championship form. That's where they are now. That's the expectations. And he does sort of pine for those Premier League days again. So I do think that as a Palace fan, it is about just being stable. As a Fulham fan, it is about just being stable in the Premier League. And you never know, there will be a little push for Europe every now and then. We even saw that with Burnley getting into Europe at one point under Sean Dyche. Like, it's, I, th- I think for a team lower down, it's all about having good ownership. It's about having sort of a cohesive structure at the club and the ability to slowly, slowly build. And you never know, you will have that year where you will create those memories which will last a long time. I promise that the memories that Fulham have of getting to the Europa League final mean more than a lot of some of the titles and the trophies that all these big clubs have won. And I think that is what is important for the fans. It's like, you've got to show little glimmers of hope which you can hold on to. Mm. I I want to come back to the protest thing, um, but, but maybe we'll do it after this road because we've kind of got down the the road of sort of football fans being sport and I want to I want to sort of stay there because it's interesting because you talk about sort of nuggets of hope um we spoke about it just before we start recording about that glass ceiling which I think in some of the sort of the things that you're really enjoying about Fulham right now and the sort of where you are right now I think that's interesting in comparison to Crystal Palace because mm-hmm. the thing with I think the thing with Fulham as well is that last year was unbelievable and everyone kind of had you to go down and you're still in that sort of grateful space. Yeah. But I I would imagine Palace fans were in that grateful space for a good few seasons. And coming back to Roy Hodgson and the job he's done overall, I think overall in in about, you know, three years time or whatever, people will be it. You've, you've, this has been a springboard or you've dropped. Mm. People will look back at Hodgson's time at Palace as as really, really strong. But in terms of those different ingredients... How important do you think is style of play for those mid-table teams? Well, I think this is this is largely why there is such a degree of apathy towards this season so far from a Palace fan's point of view because Roy Hodgson is the absolute definition in many people's minds of stability, the steady hand at the wheel, but the underlying numbers this season have been horrendous. So as soon as that actually disappears, there isn't a great deal left. Can I, sorry, just to go back a sec... It was so free-flowing mm-hmm. at the back end of last season. Was that bollocks then? What, like, what was that? We, we don't know. Like, <laughs> genuinely. Like, that's uh, what you were excited uh, about, wasn't uh, it? It was like, Roy doesn't, get, Roy doesn't care anymore. He's going to yeah. take the handbrake off. Off you go. We're going to have the stability you, and, and the vibes. But then you lose players, don't yeah, you? No, no, the, I was going to say this. You can't, you can't fully lay it at his door because I think it's only four or five starts that Abir Eze and Michael Elise have had together. Yeah. You know, that in itself is obviously a huge factor and no one is discounting that. It's the lack of a plan B. 
Because if if you are missing your key players and you have the likes of, admittedly, Jezreel Maraksaki got injured as well. Matthias Franzer, I mentioned him, he came in, £20 million, a rough diamond, right? It was his first start in the Premier League against Chelsea last week. You've got all sorts of different options that you could potentially go with to roll the dice a little bit. We're not talking about throwing total caution to the wind. It's this ultimate pragmatism whilst you continue to slip down the table because we're talking about the privilege of being a Premier League club. Realistically, last night's game was the definition of a six-pointer. You lose that away from home. You've got Luton, upward momentum galore. We've got them at home in a couple of weeks. There was all sorts of different moments throughout the last couple of months where it became obvious to Palace fans that this was not going to last the season happily. We lost at home to Bournemouth. We were terrible. I actually, at that point, fully said they've got to make a change here. Then we got done five at Arsenal. That's completely normal, Can but I, for a yeah. club of our mm-hmm. size. But it's the manner of it, because we went into that Brighton game. We didn't have Eze available. We didn't have Elise available from the start, but there was no intention to even try to win it. Mm. And then when you do fall behind early on, it's like watching the same slow motion car crash without any real sign of, of light at the end of the tunnel. And if we had slipped out of the Premier League, with the greatest of respect to the Sheffield Uniteds and the Burnleys, with Everton's points deduction, with a potential points deduction for Nottingham Forest, after a decade in the league, if we had gone down, it feels like the biggest wasted opportunity ever because I'm not suggesting we want to see free-flowing football that sees us qualify for Europe. I think that's a misconception. Yeah. We just want to see something that actually the fans can get behind. It's such a, it's, Again, it's such a weird place to be in the league. Mm. You, like, you use the phrase, you know, privilege, privilege mm. of the Premier League. As you said that to me, I went, ugh. Yeah, it's it, horrible, yeah. It's horrible, isn't it? Because you... I think that's a, a deeper problem where it's like, you know, can you go and kind of become, um, you know, a big team? And that's kind of happening at West Ham a little bit at the moment. So, again, under this idea of, and let me know, guys, are Premier League fans spoilt? <laughs> I think you probably need to state who you support and then say your your piece on it. But I think it's, I think some are, and I think some aren't. But I also think it's a really weird space right now. David Moyes said this. Showed his teeth at the weekend. He said, because uh, there's been a lot of discussion over David Moyes for a long time. We've had um, Nikki from West End Fan TV on the podcast just before the Conference League win. Yeah. And so obviously a trophy, which is which is great for them, which is something that David Moyes has got, got and can use and, and has used in a quote from the weekend. Because obviously West Ham, West Ham are sort of having an OK season, but aren't playing brilliantly. Henry's shaking his head here. Oh. I'll come to you in a second. Let me just read the quote. So I think they'll... I think they'll, brackets the fans, honestly have to say that it's as good a time as there's been at the club regarding winning a trophy, Conference League, and league positions. Maybe there'll be managers who excite them more, possibly. Here it comes. But the one who's sitting here wins more, he said after a defeat. Now, so first of all, does David Moyes have a point here? Is he a victim of his own success or has he stagnated? What can he genuinely do to improve on winning the Conference League? They are currently in the Europa League. <laughs> and Henry's still shaking his head. Uh, West Ham, right to be unhappy with David Moyes. Um, I'll tell you what, Nicky uh, sent me a voice note. I'll, I'll give you the sort of top line from it. Henry, why are you shaking your head, mate? Well, look, I've, I've said this on Football Daily and other channels, so I must have the confidence to say it here Show and now. Show your chest again, go on. No, it's just, I, I'm, all, I'm on David Moyes' side on this. I think West Ham are pretty much a perfect study of what we've been talking about. They've spent a lot of money over the um, past few years. They've experimented with managers that hasn't necessarily worked. And yet now they've had three years of European football in a row, a Europa League semi-final. They won the Conference League. Those scenes, I really really enjoyed seeing East London lit up like that for the trophy parade. I thought that was fantastic. It's a proper proper football area, do you know what I mean? And and it goes back to kind of what I was saying, like West Ham is as much a community club as anything in in my mind. Like it really defines that East London... um, East London sector and when you go to Stratford you see the West Ham shirts being worn everywhere it means I know they're upset about the stadium but they do have a pretty remarkable facility to play in and they are enjoying European football every year they've got some players like Kudus coming in who are beginning to excel the Premier League is a tough division it's a really tough division I don't know why people keep forgetting this <laughs> so, like, so, okay next prickly question right is there a problem when it comes to Premier League mid-table fans of short-termism Full stop. There yeah. you go. There's a question. Is there a short term? Because Palace are, you know, 
I guess five points off the you know the bottom three will probably be okay. It's a time where you could probably get your head up. And and just to come back, last thing on Palace, the short um, the short sorry long term play. If you were just you know playing football manager and you're you know the owner, mm-hmm. is you go and obviously Roy's health's not been great, so that that's a problem here. And and with Glasner, there was an idea that he didn't really want to even take the job because he wants a pre-season so that can, you know, you can hit the ground running. The long-term move is that you allow, you don't really sack managers in the middle of the season if you're a mid-table team because you get to the end of this season and then you can, you know, address it properly, get the signings that, that work for the project, blah, blah, blah. So again, is this one where... Is it just is there sort of a short termism when it comes to West Ham as well? When if it's not constantly like marching forwards, you can't seem to, fans can't seem to zoom out and see the bigger picture. My perspective on the West Ham fans' view of David Moyes differs slightly, only because I, I completely agree. You know, you look at their tangible success in recent times; it's up there with any club of our stature. Mm-hmm. Not that West Ham fans would thank me for saying we're the same size, because we're clearly not, but. I still feel like, and, and I've said this to Jim before, that the role of a Premier League manager in 2024 is as much about PR and being the public face of something as it is about the results. It shouldn't be necessarily because it's their job to put a tactically cohesive team out and get the results and put them in the right place in the table, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But I look at it and I see so many managers that just fail to read the room. And that in itself is unfortunately, it can be a terminal thing. You know, as much as that quote has given you the opportunity to lead into this segment today, <laughs> it, it will have pissed it people done. off. It, it will have done. There is no doubt about it. Can I get, so the other, I get what you're saying, because I think you're probably implying as well that Roy Hodgson's done similar things this season, right? Well, there are, he has, there right? Are, look at the Conte thing with Spurs. It's a different size of football club, yeah. but they, they live with it. So as a sort of general rule, it, I you could spin that and go, both David Moyes and Roy Hodgson have kind of just... They're going to get question and question and question mm-hmm. and question and question and question, and they're kind of just showing their teeth a little bit, yeah. aren't they? But that's just never going to work with the, how loud fan bases are, both you know, online and in stadiums now. It largely depends for me in whether or not, and I'm not suggesting they have to go. Yes, the fans are right in every sense, but just give a little bit. Mm. Just say, you know, I appreciate the form has not been good enough. If you look at West Ham's recent form. They went to Fulham. They got handily beaten. They were beaten at home six by Arsenal. This isn't this isn't something that and I was saying this before we started recording the podcast. A lot of people go to football as a form of escapism. Whether or not they should attach that much emotional depth to it is another conversation entirely. Mm-hmm. But people do. It's a ubiquitous thing, you know, in terms of social media. It's almost suffocating if you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And when that is part and parcel of your daily life, to see the person that is the figurehead of your club from a public facing perspective sort of pushing back, it may well be how they feel, but it's not going to end well for you. I actually went on a podcast of yours a few months back. We were talking about um, Stephen Gerrard and Aston Villa. And there was one particular moment towards the end of his spell where he was talking about a particular player. He got questioned about why he wasn't giving him minutes. And he said, oh, are you a friend of his then? And it immediately, just you don't read the room. And if you're already on on dodgy ground with a fan base, that is going to lead to issues for you, I think. I think it's something we're going to be... Um... I'm going to be trying to do a podcast on it and a video on it soon. Just, the pressure cooker for a manager is wild. It's huge now. <laughs> it's so diff- so difficult. Um, with with this with this sort of bottom half situation, out of these clubs, Wolves, Fulham, Bournemouth, Brentford, Palace, Forest, Everton, um, obviously Luton, Burnley, Sheffield United at the bottom of there. Can any of those genuinely improve on better than eighth? Because again, I think Brighton, Brighton are the anomaly and the blueprint. I think what I'm finding here in this discussion is that kind of everything's true, if you know what well, I mean. It's never been harder, um, but there's also a, a route to it. Um, expectation is a massive thing here. Say like Wolves, for example, everyone's loving Gary, Gary O'Neill, right? They're 11th. Mm. If they finish 11th, 11th, 11th with the same points, playing the same way, by the fourth season, he'll get the sack. Probably. I think... But that's weird, isn't it? It's, stu- it's, it's stupid, <laughs> it, it, really. It, it, it is it silly. Is. It is silly. And, you know, Wolves have rolled the dice a little bit in the last few years in the transfer market, and it's kind of come back to haunt them a little bit. I do think Aston Villa are a fascinating example of, if you put in a long-term plan, it's kind of what you were saying. I think giving Roy Hodgson a one-year deal and just knowing that that was going to end and after that they would go again was a bit of an intriguing decision at the summer. Aston Villa 
quite clearly since the new owners have come in have implemented a plan. They were they were a championship club not too long ago. That's bear in mind. Yeah. That as well. We and may they beat them at home, 1-0. And they've, slowly, they've had the confidence to sell players like Grealish. They've had the confidence to reinvest wisely in their squad. When you talk about Grealish, you say confidence. I think that's, with the, some of these as well, say you talk about, we're going to get onto some kind of FFP in terms of the ability to get yourself into that top six. If Villa don't sell Jack Grealish, 100 mil profit, because mm-hmm. he's homegrown, they can't be the Villa they are, can they? No, I, I completely agree with you. Even look at Bayer Leverkusen, they sold Moussa Diaby, their sort of star attacker in the summer. And it's all about having a good team behind the scenes, a good sort of scouting network, sporting directors that know what they're, know the industry that they're really working in. And then you can build up from there. Because Villa, if, in all honesty, their signings the last few years have been brilliant. Uh, Louise in midfield, yeah. he had one exceptional season at Spain. They took a chance on him. Ollie Watkins, obviously brilliant in the championship. They took a chance on him. That's gone very well. You do need a bit of luck in the transfer market. And that's why I think with like Frank Franza mm. this year to have spent 20 million on a fairly unproven youngster. I think that'll it, come good though. So it, it, could, that. it could come good. But in the short term, kind of pragmatic nature of what you need to be to stay in the Premier League, that was intriguing. I just, I just think Villa have clearly implemented a good plan and they've got to the point where they're able to attract a world-class manager in Unai Emre to elevate that squad even further. And now they're reaping the rewards. And I don't think Villa are going to drop off anytime soon. Come back to Palace. Is that, a f- that makes it a, a kind of a fair idea to protest quite possibly where you go, because it wasn't just about the manager. It was about the, it was about the ownership and therefore that decision to... Hodgson was almost like a sort of just a, a, a symbol of kind of where they're going. And when it comes to the Premier League and the dominance it has in world football terms of eyeballs and things like that the one place where you can get world class is probably in the in the manager's seat mm, probably right? well look at Glasner with us yeah you know he's just rocked up he won the Europa League a year or two ago and he's come into a relegation battle with 14 games to go in the Prem it still is a bit strange to me now you know, well, so yesterday. with Glasner coming in the one thing when I read up about him is it's funny isn't it again question for all fans is yeah. are you bothered about the long term because every, when I read about him I'm impressed by him but he'll either do really well and probably poached. get poached or or he'll fall out with the owners mm, probably but <laughs> but then you're so excited like you like no. we, we're talking you're no. going I'm buzzing I'm buzzing I'm buzzing this is going to end badly it feels like from what I'm reading well it depends it depends or when so, is it going to end badly is the thing that matters right so you talk about the Brighton blueprint I don't necessarily think that the end game even has to be consistent European football. I think it just has to be a case, particularly with us. We are a unique case in that sense because of the Category 1 Academy in South London. It's such a huge part of our fans' identity to have that academy producing players on a regular basis. And a huge opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone talks about the hotbed of football that is South London. Not just in South London, all over the place. There are books on it, you know, and we, now that we have a Category 1 Academy, you look at players like Noni Madueke, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, they could have all come through the Palace Academy. There was like a weekend of of English players, 14% of them in the Premier League were from South London. You could pretty much field an 11, other than the goalkeeper, from it. So that, and I'm not suggesting you hoover up every single player, but that side of it is a huge part of what Palace fans want to see. Yeah. David Ozo's come through the academy. You automatically get 10 or 15 games of leeway by definition. Mm. And I'm not suggesting that has to be the be all and end all, but it's a huge part of what makes us, us as fans. Do you know, you've got me there because actually when I'm listening to that, if I was a Palace fan... I'd be okay with going down as long as I can see because that, the, in terms of the road out to being a top six side, you, any club needs to figure out what ingredients they've got, right? So say with QPR, QPR, um, it's a it's a selling an Eze. It's a mm-hmm. we're a London mm-hmm. club. You can get in. You'll always be able to get sort of different the right kind of people but to probably get the the good players that get um, kicked out of the top clubs in London. We need to hoover those guys up and we need to give them a place where. There and those players and also exciting loan players maybe as well all want to come and play here under a progressive manager where you play good football and then that leads to you maybe sneaking up and then all of a sudden you're kind of you're a part of it right mm-hmm. so I get it I actually get it now for the yeah, first yeah. time probably is that the thing with Hodgson is that okay we've got all these we are the hotbed of young footballers in this country and we're not seeing them. No. You have to be seeing them, and for he, better or for worse. And this isn't to throw individuals under the bus, but when you are prioritising the likes of Will Hughes and Jeffrey Schlupp every week over David Ozo, David Ozo came on away at Manchester City with an hour to go and did not look remotely out of place. Mm. Didn't start after that. 
Like that in yeah. itself is an incredibly frustrating place to be as a fan mm. because he's he's one of ours. He's been here since he was eight. Because that's your nugget of hope, isn't it? it? But it's not the nugget of hope because but you, it is you, though. But isn't you've, it? you've, if you've you got players. Go but if you want to get into Europe, and you want to win. You talk about FFP as well. It's a huge thing because if like Aaron Wambasaka came through our academy, was in our first team for a year, went off to Manchester United, fifty million pounds. <laughs> that funds the Category One Academy mm. for a decade. Wow. You know, that in itself, I'm not suggesting you're going to produce a £50 million fullback every year. But it's your road exactly. it's your road to the top, isn't it's it? It's the only way we can actually be a sustainable long-term Premier League project. And it's literally the biggest win you can have PR-wise with our fan base. Yeah. I, I can't say it any clearer than that, really. Yeah, I, I, that is, to give West Ham fans a bit of, um, to hear their grievances... Their youth team won the FA Youth Cup very recently. West Ham have got a fantastic academy, and yet David Moyes is sort of very bluntly using about 15 players week in, week out. And, you know, I can understand their frustration about not having, like, younger players coming through. But to kind of go back to something you were saying, the Brighton blueprint, Mm. there was a fascinating interview at the end of last season. I think David Weir, he's he's heavily involved up at the club. And he basically said that they've got a profile of managers that they have in place who they'll want to replace Deservey, let's say, if he leaves. They've got a clear structure year after year of what might happen, who might go where. They're not naive. They yeah. know that big players are going to, uh, big clubs are going to coach, uh, poach their players or their managers or their backroom staff, as we've seen time and time again. Yeah. But because they're a well-run club with sort of an, with an aligned um, mentality or sort of strategy, strategy exactly. Yeah. Because of that happens, they are able to replace and sort of keep progressing forward. And that's what I think more smaller clubs need to get to. It is tricky with having four different owners, four mm. different voices in the dressing room. And it's interesting about the Glasner um, uh, appointment this year. Apparently, that is very aligned. All four agreed, yes, this is the man to go get. And that is that, that should be a seed of hope, really, I think, for Palace fans to go, well, look, you've got a very progressive manager, someone that has elevated every single club he's gone to so far. And even if it is just a three-year cycle, even if it is a four-year cycle, I'm not, I'm not naive. I know that Marco Silva could probably leave Fulham at some point, but you're a London club, you're in a good position to hold on to people. Let's not forget that geography is huge when it comes to yeah, elevating these, these smaller clubs. As long as Palace begin to implement a strategy wherein they can go, well, we might have Glasner for this amount of time, but then we'll be at this point where we can maybe bring in a certain other manager who could also elevate themselves. They need to sort of put themselves as a platform to elevate different mm. people up through their system. So, yeah, I think the Brighton Blueprint is fascinating to follow for a club like Crystal Palace in knowing how to be progressive and plan for the future. I wonder if the... So what Nicky said uh, when I asked him was they've kind of been sold a dream here. And the roots of it are the fact of leaving Upton Park and going to the London Stadium, which they've had some incredible nights there. And that's important to sort of get it going in terms of the feeling there. But I've been to London Stadium. It's it's really far away. From the it's hard work. Um, but the sort of deal with the devil, for want of a better phrase, was that. You know we're you know we're gonna we're gonna be able to challenge. We're gonna be a sort of a, you know I guess an Aston Villa like, and be in that world. And they've been kind of close to that world. But I think the aesthetic of it is really interesting. Come back to the you know oh this could be our, our route to to sort of the to breaking into that top six seven, uh, which is, has got more competitive. And look, there's hypocrisy in what we're saying it because Brighton are in that and Villa mm-hmm. are in that right now. So that um, and even a Tottenham team that's you know lost some of its you know top players and it's quite. An, Odd, odd squad that you've got there but with West Ham I think it, it then comes back to sort of I don't know it's slightly shallow to a point but it's Moyes and Hodgson you kind of group them together a little bit and when you have got these really ex- far more big names in that West Ham side the next thing you want to see just like with Hodgson and, and, and Palace is look we've got all these kids here let's let's use them I want to see them let's use our ingredients I think for West Ham they feel like they've got better players than the quality that they're seeing in terms of the, the style of playing the games of football. Um, it's safe. It's very Moyes. It's very Moyes at Everton. And that, that works in terms of those tangible elements that you're talking about. But it's it's amazing. Like in terms of the expectations of what you should receive as a football fan now, especially for West Ham fans, to sort of back up what Nicky's saying, when they're being sold this idea that look at the money we're going to bring in, that's going to bring in these great players that's not enough. You want to see great players playing great football these days. Do you not think David Moyes' contract ends the end of this season? There's a, uh, I think the fan pressure more than anything will torpedo the idea of a new contract for him. Do you not just think, get behind him until the end of the campaign. You're ninth, you're eighth, whatever it is right now. You're not too far away from potentially a conference league play next year. You're in the Europa League knockout rounds. They might win you're, that. You're in a th- yeah. Yeah, European competition for the third year in a row. There is the caveat of... You know, 
fans have been uh, sort of leached for money a lot of the time everywhere and the cost of going to see football is obviously huge in this country but they are getting what they kind of want which is a three European campaigns um, so the great nights at their stadium which I know they don't particularly enjoy being there but do you not think just get behind it now and then at least in the summer there's a cutoff point where they can make a decision to go next Quickly, question number three. Are football fan, have football fans' patience gone gone down or has their footballing intelligence gone up? <laughs> XG, baby. XG. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They wouldn't listen, would they? Um, <laughs> because what you've said there is incredibly sensible and actually often... So for me, with QPR, we've been up, we've been down. I just want to see that we're going in the right direction. And so uh, during the Ainsworth period... I was like, this doesn't make any sense here. We've completely quit on the vision that we had. Um, whereas with this new manager, you're like, oh my God, I can see, I what see it. I can see it. I can see it. Which again, I, I'm now completely with the Palestine. Now I totally get it. You've totally won me over. Because I'm like, I need to, you need to see it. Like you need to have something to kind of hang on to. Um, but overall, I'm generally, I'm generally one of the last to go, okay, he needs to go as manager now. I've not, I've only done that sort of probably three times and we've had a lot of managers at QPR yeah but broadly you, what you've said there's a very sensible take do you think do you think Premier League fans especially in the world that we work in do you think Premier League fans are are so used to so much noise and so much ups and downs and narratives that their patience has uh, dwindled I would say so I, I think it's a society wide issue to be honest I think dopamine is something that everyone is bombarded by wherever they look now. Phones, TV, 24-hour news coverage, social media, people talking about their clubs who aren't necessarily embedded with their clubs every day. That in itself can be exhausting. Mm. And obviously the comparison to other clubs, talked about the Brighton Blueprint a fair few times on this podcast already, that it sort of gets rammed down your throat. I would suggest that the Palace fans specifically, I'm not going to labour this point, but we are somewhat different to West Ham in the sense that a lot of our core support are actually worried about the commercialisation of the club. We want to get back to a point when we got promoted in 2013 when everyone, from the ownership all the way down, were pulling in the same direction and that sense of spirit and fight was evident rather than this fractured situation at the board level where it feels as though there are people pulling in different directions. Hopefully, Oliver Glasner does actually bring that sense of unity back. But in terms of general football fans, I think it's an inevitable part of, of being part of the, the football community now because there's so much chatter. Can Palace or Fulham break into the top six? No. And if not, so, not consistently, no. It's no. impossible. Impossible. Oh, unless the ownership got a huge ingestion of cash. It's just not going to be doable. No. As... as why not? As I, because the, the is it, thing is, is, is that, FFP as much as I, I often sort of preach about, you know, stopping the top teams um, spending, which I'm, I'm really enjoying. Like I'm really enjoying that. I really loved that January was quiet. Like in terms of the the sort of the silly transfer money that's been sort of thrown about, because it's just it's like it's on a different planet to me. But. So here's a great report from Kai here. So the Premier League rules around FFP are ensuring a power shift can't happen. It's likely that Wolves will have to sell Pedro Neto to comply with FFP this summer, which I don't have huge sympathy for because they have spent money at times. Forrest had to do it with Brennan Johnson and Everton had to do it with Richarlison, but the only way for bottom half clubs to close the gap is to spend big money. But when they do, they're forced to sell their best players, meaning that the only true way for them to do this is to look for a model like Brighton. However, when you do this, you get labelled as a feeder club or a small club, which means your players want to leave when a big club comes knocking. No, I, I, I think if, being honest, out of Fulham and Palace, Fulham are probably better placed to be a big six club right now, sort of brand new sort of stadium coming in. We've had owners now that have been at the club for quite a long time. Take take or leave the cons, but at least they are beginning to get an idea of what's going on, as it were. And I, I do think sort of the West London position, whatnot, the the the, the threats that we've made in com cup competitions the last few years, Fulham could be in a position in like a five year cycle to potentially have a top six run. But I don't believe that they a smaller club could really break into the top six long term because the bigger clubs just have too much money. They have the ability to just throw money at situations and fix them, which a lot smaller clubs don't do. But you can be smart. You can build towards these, um, a chance at it. You know, I think there are Leicester and got Palace into... Palace got more sellable assets 
than Fulham. I would suggest I would that say they so do in terms of frequency. Yeah, because the the, the blueprint, the way to do it. Again, if we kind of utilize Brighton are done in a different way, and I know this kills you. <laughs> Brighton do it in a different way, right? They're, in terms of yes, it's kind of almost like their own homegrown players, but these homegrown players from around the world. Palace is very different; it's very local mm. in terms of what you're kind of looking to do. But it will be about selling off. Sorry, it'll be about selling off four Wambasakas mm. and using that money brilliantly and 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 being better, a bit like Brentford have done on their way up. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I was in the park before I came into this studio. Adam Walton has started two games for us. I said, I've slept on it and I think I'm in love with Adam Walton. Because <laughs> I am. A Liverpool fan replied to me and went, he's too good for you, it'll be gone in the summer. He's arrived in the last day of the January, <laughs> January window. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, that's one isolated tweet, right? Yeah. But it speaks to the problem that clubs of our stature have. Because we don't have the pedigree of a Manchester United, it wouldn't matter if Manchester United didn't win a trophy for 20 years, right? They are still, in the eyes of your average, everyday football fan in the street, a bigger club than Crystal Palace. And, I mean, I look at West Ham and Declan Rice. It's a prime example. Academy graduate, captain, won a European trophy. As soon as... As soon as the big clubs collectively decide that player is not at that level anymore, they will go. They mm. will go. because That's the Arsenal, other E, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that in itself, and that is the glass ceiling, that regardless of all the forward planning, the transfer strategy, the buy low, sell high, players of potential, you can line your pockets and you can go again. But if a player gets... Look at Michael Elise. If Michael Elise had not had injuries this season, he's gone. Like he probably will still be gone anyway. If he played all season at the level he was, there is no way on earth he stays at Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. So in terms of a sustained push for European football, it's bordering on impossible because you constantly have to refresh those fantastic players. Yeah, but you're do, right. Do you not think this is where your academy really comes in? Because yes. the Brighton strategy has that's where been, the anger comes from. The yeah. Brighton strategy has been to sell one big player every year and reinvest that in lots and lots of different options. Like the amount of players they've bought is actually insane, Brighton, over the last few years. Mm, they've got quite a few. They have Ella <laughs> Skagon. It is, <laughs> mate. It is. If you actually look at the numbers, it's mad. Yeah, but there's other numbers you can look at. I mean, they've done quite. Oh, a lot. Yeah, but they, yeah, but they, they, they've unearthed they've like four, four, maybe fifty million pound players in their squad, and they can afford to sell one of them and keep sort of bringing new players through and that is where like the Palace Academy could be huge and that's where like scouting networks really come into it so it, I, I don't think it's impossible I just think you just I, said I, it was impossible no, two, I, four minutes ago he said it's impossible long term right I said I said I think the big clubs have still got too much of a hold over the top of the division and you're so right about FFP it does feel like it's kind of clamping down on the ability of younger clubs to come up but I do think I feel like I'm a broken record saying this like if you have your house in order behind the scenes then you have a much better chance of getting to that goal do you know what's a great example is so Leicester used to be Brighton mm-hmm. weren't they they were like well, look they sold Chilwell and the Maguire and they were selling these players but it stopped and again coming back to, to QPR we sold Eze and we're like oh great and then we're just like okay where's the we, we did another guy. yeah but we didn't sell him right you have to you have to sort of um be that you have to be that feeder club to feed yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and it's oh, demoralising. It's demoralising <laughs> in a sense as well. It is demoralising, but I think that's why you have to be so long term with it. And that's where what's interesting to me about West Ham and Aston Villa is that for me, I see them as much bigger entities, and therefore they're in their own little bracket of well, we can get James Ward, we can get some of these big names. Kudos. Yeah, we can get some of these big names, but we're going to have to pay for those big names. But are we going to be able to sell those guys on for the same kind of profit as as a, as a Brighton or a or a Chris Palace can when they when they get their players in terms of the sort of markup? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a weird space. It's well, I mean, really w- weird with us as well. You mentioned the new stand at Fulham. That we're we're on the verge of finally Touchwood breaking ground on the new main stand. And there are a lot of Palace fans that are genuinely... It's one of those necessary evils. We know that from an FFP perspective, we need more matchday income. Mm-hmm. We know that that has to come through corporate. It has to come through higher ticket prices in that particular stand with an enhanced view. But there is this huge thing at Palace of the ground being horrible to get to. It's not a particularly nice place, but we feel it's ours. And that sense of losing our identity to play the Premier League game is something that a large section of our fan base are not happy about. They know that it needs to happen, but it doesn't feel like us. And, you know, that sort of goes down the route of what the Premier League product is. Mm. You have to... 
convert or die in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're, the second podcast we're going to do is about Barcelona. I, I had the same kind of feeling when I was sort of reading up about them is that, you know, they didn't have a sponsor and then they, they didn't want the sponsor. And then it's like, oh, actually, we really need <laughs> Mesquite Club. Oh, exactly. God. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of uh, the final answer on that, then, give me an answer. Are Premier League fans spoiled? Or, sorry, are mid table Premier League fans spoiled? Yes or no? Or somewhere in between. Who's going first? Do you want me to go first? Yeah. I can go first. My feeling... <laughs> oh, the suspense is killing me. Are they spoiled? No, I don't think they are spoiled. I, I think... Um, I generally think a huge percentage of every football club's fans are impatient, stupid idiots. Mm-hmm. I really wholeheartedly believe that. <laughs> sure. But... But I think this the sort of constraints and the sort of the dreams that are being sort of thrown at these clubs and the bottom line, I think there's the confusion here. There's a cognitive dissonance around the idea that it's a sport, but it doesn't really feel like a sport sometimes. And I think that's yeah. the biggest problem for the, the whole scenario when I look at, at everything is that I just see I just see sort of um, chunks and brackets of clubs these days mm-hmm. and in between them, I see these huge gaps. Whereas I think before it all felt far more fluid and there felt like a lot more opportunity. We just got into We found the crumb of opportunity there if you're perfect yeah. for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's tough to swallow. And it's not very exciting. <laughs> I, I think fans accept that they're probably paying too much. They accept a lot of th- th- that that balance between the club and the fans is very delicate sometimes. And I think they accept that it's a a privilege to be in the Premier League, to get to see the best players all the time. But there are moments when clubs push it too far, when they begin to take advantage of the fans, whether it be the style of play, the ticket prices, whatnot, sort of the attitudes behind the scenes. That's when the kind of raw emotions of being a community and whatnot and like what really is driving you to go see these games. That's when it really comes to the boil. So I think, I think, they are spoilt in that they get to see the greatest football product in the world week in, week out. But that doesn't mean that they don't have the right to complain and they should not be disrespected because at the end of the day, fans are what makes club. At the end, of the day, it's about going to support a team from your area that represents you guys. That's what football fundamentally is. And it's important every now and then that uh, clubs remember like what their sole purpose really was meant to be. I'll just say as well, the mid-table element of it is that, is that you, you, all of those things are true, but you also do it under, in the shadow of being patronised mm. constantly. Without a doubt. You know, but by definition, Palace and Fulham, we're always outside of the conversation in terms of the general media spotlight, by definition, mm-hmm. because if Liverpool do something, if Manchester United do something, there are more eyeballs globally. Yeah. It, it's a capitalist society. That is how it works. Right? We all understand that. My argument has always been... It's relative to your position in whatever division you are in. If QPR under Gareth Ainsworth was making you miserable, you've got a new guy, you're still in the bottom three, but you see signs of progress. It doesn't matter about whether you're mid-table in the Premier League. You could be mid-table in League One. If you see your team doing something progressive that gets you infused about the club that you care about deeply, that is what gets you out of bed in the morning as a fan. It It doesn't matter what division you're in. Portsmouth have been knocking around in the third tier for God knows how long. Yes, they are top, but there is a mindset there that has shifted under John Massinho this season. And it's not just results, it's the entire feel of the place. And it's it's intoxicating for everybody. And it's the same when Michael Carrick first went in at Middlesbrough. It's the same when Stephen Schumacher got Plymouth promoted. There's a community spirit that meshes together. And I think this mid-table Premier League spoilt thing is too reductive because it really is a it's an argument that comes down to... i make a title though, not I? Yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> but it's a good question. But I think the actual answer is that football fans just want to see something, whatever division they're in, that they can buy into. Yeah, yeah. And what's, yeah. what is uh, funny, and, and there's an element of hypocrisy in it, um, but again, it comes back to the fact that it is a sport and you're supposed to care about the winning and the losing. Mm. Is that the winning and the losing utterly, <laughs> completely kind of intoxicates the mind mm. so defeats lead to just outrageous anger like myself right we we lost to stoke how many times you said stoke in the no, like, no. lost to stoke last week and I, it was our chance to get out of the bottom three and i was like i went on a rant the next day on a, on on the, the yeah. podcast with flav but then we win on saturday i'm like Buzzing. we're going somewhere we, we, i think <laughs> we all can resonate with this 
there have been much worse times for our clubs than right now. There have been real dark. Well, on, I don't on, know about you, James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 not the much pickles. worse, I'll but be honest. It is important to remember. And as we'll get on in the Barcelona podcast, Barca have had tough times before. And yet they've risen up from the ashes and whatnot. I think it's important to remember, like, it could be a lot worse for your club mm. and, than what it is right now. Final thing I want to talk about is, is these protests. Do you think... So there are often uh, protests amongst fans when a manager is underperforming, but what happened at Palace feels different because the protests weren't solely directed towards the manager, more so sending a message to the higher-ups of the club. People will say that this happens all the time, but it does feel a bit different. The ripple from this could be an increased level of protest from fans who feel let down by their club. And with this strategy working in Palace's case, it may also ignite more serious protests amongst fans because they now genuinely have a reason to believe that they can get what they want if they push hard enough. We are in a age of far more protesting and, and avenues to protest as well. As a fan of a club that's, as I say, done it in that in that quiet sort of German way, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like Palace have that sort of vibe to it. Do you think you'll see, do you think we'll see that? Like, how do you feel about the protest uh, element of it? Possibly, I, I think that the whole ultra side of of what we have is something that is often derided. It's looked down upon by many, rightly or wrongly. Do you think but, so? Yeah, I, partic- well, social media is toxic by definition. So as soon as you have a group of people that are banging a drum, jumping up and down, and, and making choreographed noise. It, it sort of jars with English football culture. Sure. The banner in the away end at Arsenal picked up a lot of traction because they put it up. You know, Roy Hodgson's looking at it. The media spun it that it was directed at Roy. It wasn't. It's a multifaceted thing. But it comes back to the point that I was making a few minutes ago about the need for our club. For us to feel as a fan base that we are truly happy, everyone has to be on the same page. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do but we had that magic alchemy in the year that we got promoted. You know, we were in the bottom four or five under Dougie Friedman. We lost at Bristol City and they had an argument, him and the owners, in the in the car park. Something changed. I'm not quite sure what. We brought in Yannick Belassi and a couple of others. We went on this mad run. Uh, and there's, there's a documentary about it on Amazon. This team of misfits that came together. I'm on a bit of a... No, go for it, go for I'm it. I'm on a bit of a thing. This team of misfits that came together... That sense of everyone pulling in the same direction is what really ignited the Palace spirit for the first three or four years in the Premier League. And to be fair, you know, the money that we have generated through Josh Harris and David Blitz's involvement, through John Texter coming on board, has paid for the academy, it's ring-fenced the money for the main stand. It's all been necessary. If you actually look at what Steve Parrish has been able to do in terms of bringing those billionaires on board, it has safeguarded the club long-term. And you have to always think about that in the bigger picture but if you look at the, the situation back in 2010, we had four Palace fans that came in and saved the club from administration. It felt very authentic and very real. And unfortunately, the Premier League doesn't allow for that to be the case long term if you want to be there. And that sense of frustration that we've lost, what makes us us, is really, I mean, the banner is the tip of the iceberg in many ways. I don't think there is this huge sense of vitriol towards Steve Parrish or indeed any of the individual owners it's this sense that we are drifting from what makes Palace Palace in their fans' minds. Mm. The um, again, the confusion for me though is like, everything you said there, which is I, I I don't doubt for a second that you that you that you mean it, but I I hear straight away you exceeded expectations and you were winning games, and then we all align that with something. What with the promotion or with yeah, staying? In, well, you, no, but so the promotion. I mean, but the promotion the promotion was so unexpected. You got to bear in mind, Dougie Freeman left. For Bolton, Ian Holloway came in, we capitulated and then somehow got into the playoffs, beat Brighton over two legs without Glenn Murray and then won the playoff final. No one expected it. If anything, we went too fast too soon because it came out of nowhere. But then once we managed to stabilise ourselves in the Premier League, no one expected us to stay up for the first two or three years, but we did it through a collective spirit. Mm. And that is an intoxicating thing in itself. So when that drifts and you have all these questions about the owners being on the same page it just doesn't feel like us I'm not suggesting that's the case for everybody just putting forward the no, palace the palace but, vibe but again I just I think again that comes back to expectations of couldn't but like wow we've got something that's different to everyone else but I know it's, it's brutal and it's mean and I don't even know why I'm really bringing it up <laughs> but it's like if you if you if you strip it back you just sort of went on a run so you then as we all do we make it all romantic and special and then those first three years that you're talking about you're grateful. You're happy mm-hmm. to be there. The expectations are low. Just survive. And if your expectations are low, just survive. And you're above that. Like you said a couple of minutes ago, 
you're happy, you're okay, you're content with life. Generally, if you feel like you're exceeding your expectations in life, you feel like everything's okay. It's yeah. when you're doing the opposite or standing still, then people start to get annoyed. And I think that's where you are and, and you're where Palace are now, and which mm. has led to the anger mm. uh, as much as everything else. And again, we've flip-flopped all over the place on this podcast, which I actually love. Um, but also, come back to the Fulham side of it, is that you're still in that grateful space. So I, th- I can see us having... Henry on the pod I said we'll do the same pod same people in three years time you'll be in league one Rangers will be in the Prem yeah, yeah. and you'll be in the relegation zone looking oh, forward to it it's um, on yeah. it's fascinating um, hopefully you've enjoyed this one guys this is the whole point of, of the podcast and basically all the content we make is that okay look a title of things has got to be a bit hyperbolic but after that we get into the grey get into the weeds of it love that um, guys uh, go check out Henry on Twitter what's your Twitter handle um, Henry underscore Hill 94 there you go simple um, have you got a Twitter Daniel? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, go check out HLTCO uh, also check out the YouTube channel as well and the Patreon um, daily podcast right mm-hmm. on both Palace and General Football there Monday to Friday uh, lovely stuff uh, thanks boys uh, we're going to take a little break and then we'll do another podcast which will be out later this week support the podcast guys please please support the podcast hit the follow button give us a five star review and uh, have a great day 